0: A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Sportbox. The headlines this hour. A shakeup at UBS. Chief Executive Sergio Amotti steps down as the Swiss bank names ING's boss, Ralph Hammers, as the new CEO. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq close at fresh record highs while Chinese shares join the rally. Beijing cuts its benchmark lending rate to stem the fallout of coronavirus.
1: White House Warning. Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney says Huawei's role in the UK's 5G rollout could have a direct and dramatic impact on transatlantic intelligence sharing. And Michael Bloomberg coming under attack over his record on race, women and taxes in the New York billionaire's first appearance on the Democratic debate stage. Fortunately, I make a lot of money. And we do
0: business all around the world, and we are preparing it. The the number of pages will probably be thousands of pages. I can't go to TurboTax.
2: Plus, the earnings keep rolling in, and we've got a stacked show for you. Don't miss our interviews with top executives from Schneider Electric, Cyber, Anglo-American, Swiss Re, and Accor.
1: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, good morning to you. What do you reckon the difference between through cycle and actual revenue growth? Well, through cycle, of course, uh, means beyond one quarters, one half, one year's growth. Uh, Through cycle is talking about the longer term factor, and that is what Schneider Electric is trying to do today to reaffirm its through cycle objective of three to six percent average organic growth in revenues. But There is a but, I'm afraid, and you could probably say it's down to coronavirus amongst other factors. They're talking about 2020 revenue growth of being only between one and 3%. And Jean-Pascal Triquoise laughed at the numbers, and I'm just going to confirm the figure before I say it to you. Yeah, back in October, organic growth was 3.1% in the third quarter on October 24th. So you can see the effect in the short to medium term, at least, of factors such as coronavirus, with now only 1% to 3% organically for the whole of this year. Uh, I'm not jumping to conclusions and saying it's coronavirus. The company is saying it does see a first quarter impact of around €300 million, mainly in China. Uh, Coronavirus Q1 impact due to factory closures in January and February assumes Q1 impact will be almost entirely compensated in largely uh, 2020, largely in the second half, i.e. this is the question that Karen and Jeff and myself and guests have been questioning for a long time. Is this leading to pent up demand of this coronavirus where thereafter we will see an explosion of demand in various products, in various issues, what have you, or actually is that demand that is lost forever. I'll leave that question hanging because I think it does actually depend on what you're talking about as well. I'll give you one or two uh, more little uh, flashes from this group as well. Uh, The revenue figure at 27.16 billion euros has just about beaten expectations of 27.08 as well. Um, Let me give you one more. Uh, Proposed dividend of 2.55 euros per share uh, that is a little bit of a sop to investors, 8.5% up year on year. This is a company which already has a 2.4% dividend yield. But I will just say very briefly, uh, these shares have had an absolute rocket up them regardless of the coronavirus. Uh, their closure of €97.4 euros per share is just below the 98 handle, 52-week high. Good morning to you both. Oh, uh, Very good morning. Welcome back. Um, it is half term here in the UK it and is, it's yeah. and
0: it's Thursday, so yeah. one figures that you'd had enough at home.
1: There's only another enough okay. sleepovers and plans. Play-date. Look, We have a lot of women in our house, and, and that's a good just, thing, by the way. That's just you, is
0: it? The sleepovers and play dates.
1: So, a lo- lo- lot of women in the house. You right. know, girls, women, wives, you name yeah. it as well. It's always uh, a good thing. It's,
2: it it yeah. is a good thing, and it's a great thing, and it makes me a more balanced human being. Yeah.
1: But but there's a lot at home at the moment. A lot of young ladies running around.
2: You stuck it out the longest. I made it back yesterday, and you didn't yeah. even take it off, <laughs> yeah. Jeff. No, no like,
0: absolutely. You there you are a the wonderful co- no. bunch of people,
1: but it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's good to get some structure back in my life. Anyway...
0: I mean, I think the Schneider story is fascinating, because we know that there's been a generalized uh, weakness in the industrial sector. It's showing up in the German numbers. It's showing up in the PMI data every time we look at the industrials globally. Schneider Electric when you look at the share price has done a very good job of surfing the, the negative tide of that industrial sector weakness. Um, I, I, I'm i with you, though, on the, uh, the whole issue of coronavirus at this point. Karen and I have been sat here all week just trying to figure out how much of it is really coronavirus, given that it only really started to show up in the actions that were taken in China um, in late January, and how much in reality is just companies that are acknowledging the weakness in the cycle anyway and are saying, you know what, we've got a great Reason here why we're not going to do so well so in here's 2020.
1: The here's a problem for, uh, and I know Karen's going to come in on this as well, but here's the problem for investors who are saying, okay, we see coronavirus, we have evaluated coronavirus, we think we have a second half story of recovery. In various companies, if coronavirus infection rates and mortality rates continue to see a slowing growth, if that's the right way of putting it as well. So people are looking for the opportunity. But the problem is, get that share price up again, if you would. Lovely director. Thanks, Will. Uh, Look at this. They're up 43.5% over the past 12 months. There has not been a blip in that performance on that chart where an investor who is looking for an opportunity and I'm going to say this, on the back of any sell-off on the back of coronavirus, they haven't had any opportunity. And this is a company which thinks it's got some very 21st century technology. Karen?
2: It's going to be about the best in breed. And if you look at the consumption story versus the business story around coronavirus, I think there might be a split. I mean, a lot of our arguments this week have been whether the consumer has a pent-up demand story later in the year. And I question that. I think it might just be foregone purchases. But when it comes to the business side, this is a company very much positioned to help companies deal with energy management in buildings and facilities. We've not seen much in the way of uh, building sales, housing sales, anything of the like in, in the property market in China at this point. So when you get a snap back, maybe a China Electric does get a V-shaped recovery. I would just question whether that is right across every industry, every sector that we've been talking yeah, I'll put about. It in the, the
1: Dassault part. system bracket, if I may, of two of the top draw French companies. Uh, which you have to pay a significant amount more for now, regardless of what else is going on. Trade wars, coronavirus, uh, concern about the interest rates and where they're going. These are the companies which are perhaps the best at what they do in Europe. And it's very difficult to see an entry point uh, any cheaper than now, given where they've come from, Can given the zeitgeist to, of what people uh, want to own.
2: Apple into the mix as well. I mean, this sort of p- points to some of the euphoria out there. Apple has had a direct warning around coronavirus in China. And what did you see? So another bounce back in the stock price yesterday. Investors had concerns. That they put into the stock price in one session. They parked it the next day. So, you <laughs> know, if you're not going to be pricing down an Apple because of coronavirus, what are you marking down at this point? Uh, I
1: hear your point, and it's a very valid point as well. Schneider Electric CEO Jean-Pascal Tricois. I can tell, Jean-Pascal, now my question is the difference between when the through cycle comes through compared to the lower end of his expectations for the first half of this year. I think that's absolutely key. When do we go from 1% through to a through cycle, potentially up to 6%? I think that sounds a stretch. Um, Let's talk about the life
0: insurance business and Swiss Re. We've got some numbers out of Swiss Re this morning. Uh, Actually, the cycle has been improving for these uh, reinsurers, Uh, those who are in general accident and in life. They have, I think begun to manage better the issue of uh, negative interest rates. So as far as uh, Swiss Re is concerned, they're giving us a full year 2019 net income of 727 million U.S. dollars. They say that's driven by their strong results in life and health, um, excellent investment performance, group net income actually up 73 percent then from the 421 million in 2018. Uh, Property and casualty reinsurance, net income up 7%. The uh, net premiums earned up 20%. Return on equity of 4.4% on that product line. We will focus on completing the sale of Reassure, and improving the performance of corporate solutions through active portfolio pruning and rate increases. The Reassure business has been something we talked a lot about with John Dacey over at, um, uh, at SwissRe. Re. Uh, they had various strategies. They were going to IPO it. They were talking about trade sales. We're still waiting to see actually that the end of that deal completed. There's a sweetener in here for shareholders. They're offering up another uh, billion uh, Swiss francs in terms of the Um, proposed buyback. Um, I think they have just completed a similar level buyback. So again, just telling the market that they have some surplus capital and they will continue to invest it in the business by repurchasing shares at this point. They say we are starting 2020 with an improved quality of our portfolio underpinned by strong January renewals and price momentum. And it does appear that premiums are higher here, so we'll have to unpick the threads when we pick up with uh, John Dacey, uh, the CFO of the business, a little bit later on. That's nine fifteen CET for the conversation.
2: Just looking at all the issues they had over the year: uh, mm. the uh, Hagabas, uh, the typhoon, one of them, uh, Hurricane Dorian in the Atlantic, wildfires, floods, uh, for instance, in Australia. So quite a big year, wasn't it, in terms of natural catastrophes?
0: Yeah, I mean it's almost been riders of the apocalypse, hasn't it? If you if you add to that the locusts that they've seen in in some parts of uh, Africa. um, Sorry, I hope that's not. I know we've
1: got other chats, but I'm back, so you know, uh, (laughs) this is time to ruin the rundown. Um, Question: Do natural weather events and horrendous typhoons and bushfires and you name it, are they bad things or good things for insurers? And I would make you. I think a very decent historical argument from from the first time I looked at this, and Hurricane Andrew onwards, which late eighties, early nineties, I would argue that actually they are potentially positive things over the longer term cycle, the through cycle, which is one of the buzzwords of the day for really insurance. It's tipping
2: point, right, where they've got an uh, exposure. It's not big enough where that they can tap into some of those reinsurance policies. But if it's you know a really really big event, then they're covered. You know, it, it's it, kind of strange it's a industry, isn't medium
1: it? Medium term premium bonanza. Mm-hmm. For insurers, the amount of times I've seen a major weather event and my car insurance goes up or or my house insurance goes up because it was a weather event in Japan or something, and it's a fact across the board premiums harden when there's been major weather events. Argue with me if you like, if you're in the insurance industry, I'll take that today. Uh,
0: UBS has appointed ING boss Ralph Hammers as its next chief executive replacing Sergio Amotti the Dutchman will take over in November the financial times reports he was approached months ago by UBS chairman Axel Weber after it was decided that Sergio Amotti's contract could not be extended uh, Sergio Amotti was appointed CEO in November 2011, expanding its wealth management division. However, the Swiss bank's share price has fallen over the last year. And with the low interest rate environment, his departure comes less than a week after his crosstown rival, Tijan Tiam, stepped down as Credit Suisse CEO. So congratulations to our friends over at UBS. You're getting a new boss and you've done a pretty good job, actually, of keeping a lid on the leaks around this because i didn't see ralph hammers as uh, as the new chief but then Maybe I just don't run in the right circles.
2: Awkward timing, too. I don't think many people in the market thought there would be a successor announced at UBS at this point, but also in the market yesterday, there was this bond issue, an additional tier one bond deal that uh, had to be pulled. Uh, there's this cryptic line that crossed, information has come to the issuer that needs to be studied. So effectively, uh, the board was notified that uh, Hammers was leaving and then there was an impact on the bond market. Um, just just one line. I, I'm right. going to give this
1: one line here. This is to all our friends out there who thinks everybody should have uh, capped salaries as well. Well, again, it's a worthy debate. Maybe there should be capped salaries. But because of the Dutch pay cap uh, about bonuses and what have you, this has limited the salary of Ralph Harmers to significantly lower than that of Sergio Motti. Now, whatever you think about banker bonuses, and I'm sure a lot of our friends who are very left of centre should we say, uh, don't think the bankers should be paid a lot of money. Well, Ralph Harmers, who's seen as pretty successful at ING, is leaving because he can get seven times more money over at UBS if you extrapolated the salary that Sergio motti has got. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I'm just talking about filthy Luca here. And the fact of the matter is, that's a hell of an incentive. Even Jeff might be tempted to go to see BBCs if he was going to get seven times more money.
0: And I I have to say, you don't have to be a socialist to think that the bankers are paid too much money.
1: I didn't say all bankers.
0: No. Um, but then, i mean some
1: bankers are worth a lot of money other bankers are worth nothing i
0: mean the interesting question you know to, to dig in the weeds on that a little bit is what represents performance for pay because <laughs> if, if the share price is the measure then on that metric you could argue that management across the european banking space has been pretty awful um, but if the measure is de-risking the bank, adjusting the the revenue stream, making it more dependable revenue rather than um, lower quality, uh, non-recurrent revenue from market activities, then you could probably argue that Quite a few of the European bankers have done a reasonable job in turning their organisations into more robust entities since the financial crisis. Well, UBS
2: and ING both in that category that are well regarded versus some of the other European banks. I mean, it is a fairly low bar when we talk about European banks. I just wanted to point to what's ahead. I mean, who would you want in this particular chair, given what's coming? And again, are we going to be back to a recession or some sort of financial crisis in the next few years at least. And if you look at uh, Ralph, he has actually been in the chair while there's been a financial crisis unfolding at ING, 28 years with the bank and helping with the cleanup process. So arguably uh, a little bit of background there where he might be the right person for any downturn in future. A little bit
1: more background as well. Ralph, once again in Davos, as was Axel, the chairman who appointed him, Axel Weber, both of them saying negative interest rates, horrendous. Again, wake-up call from the CEO, new CEO. It's going to be a long while, by the way. He's not going to be even at the company till September, let alone the actual CEO, I believe, even later. Mm. So the CEO and the chairman both speaking at the same hymn sheet to Adam Lagarde. Mm. Coming up on the show, Mr... Oh, no, we've moved on. They've changed the rundown very quickly there. Don't you
2: hate when they change the rundown on you? I Just when I'm
1: about to speak, yes. (laughs) But I'll have work with them later. I've only been in 10 minutes.
2: We've got four-year revenues crossing from Air France, KLM, with the numbers at 23.3 billion euros. When it comes to the operating margin, that is 1.7% versus 7.7% for KLM. Uh, so they're splitting They're still out in the Air France category at one7 versus much higher levels at 7.7%. Net profit, uh, 290 million euros for the year. The unit cost fell by 0.9% in the year, 1.5% in the fourth quarter. Uh, the company is saying its cargo unit was hit by demand traffic in 2019, Looking for some comments, warned that coronavirus or COVID-19 could hit its view. So it's in the numbers as it weighs up the impact of this virus. The long haul forward booking load factor down from February to May because of the virus. So the uh, longer range flights it's already uh, telling up some hits the estimates uh, could hit that operating result by 150 million to 200 million euros for the february to april period because of coronavirus so that is flagged up here the fuel bill i'm just going to uh, take a quick look at that that is uh, 5.2 billion euros down by 300 million euros for 2020 is what it sees so far but uh, coronavirus fears very much in the airline space and that is coming out today uh, for this company,
0: um, Air France KLM. What, what can you say? It's just—it's just been a. Um, it feels like it's been a tough decade, not just a tough
1: year. Get out of it! Get out of it! <laughs> Come you on. And I, I, When was the merger? Come on! I, I'm on the top of my head, 2004. 2004. Yeah, it was. I remember it. I remember full well our debate in 2004. And do you know what? Right. Talk about highly paid CEOs. If they'd listen to what, dare I say it, Karen, you didn't join our happy triumvirate until about six years later, but he and I were banging on in 2004. There was no point in having a merger where, like, well, what should we do with this merger? I know what we'll do. We'll get the name Air France and we'll tag it along with KLM. limit. Yeah, brilliant. What else should we do? Um, well, nothing. <laughs> What do do you mean, nothing? Well, you know, know, amalgamating managements and cutting costs on the ground and and more on the coaching. No, no, let's just call it Air France KLM. And that's exactly what they did. And I'm sorry, whatever you may think out there, that's what they did in 2004. They called it Air France KLM. And then left it because of the state aid this, state aid that, and you've got to have base here, and you've got to have workers here, and you can't cut jobs here, and you've got to have equanimity in the relationship between the Dutch and the French, who are, by the way, still arguing about the ownership levels of this company as well. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the problem. That, ladies and gentlemen, is why this one trades at a single digit forward PE compared with... Dare I say, it, a Ryanair and an EasyJet? There you go. That's what you can say about Air France-KLM. Uh, uh,
0: and I think that's perfectly reflected in the share price performance as you look across the uh, the one-year story.
2: We did get a carrot dangled recently, though, and that was back in November when the new CEO came in and said, "Here, you might have a dividend. Uh, we might pay out the first dividend uh, that you've seen since 2008." This will depend on the operating income hitting 1.9 billion euros. <laughs> what have you seen in the numbers today so far? Flagging up that there might be a problem with that uh, operating number because of coronavirus. So do that dividend just get yanked. So hang on. So let's just just disappear? confirm this from, a, a from the recovery. investor
1: point of view what Air France-KLM becomes. It goes from being a value trap to. A value, value trap with the dividend, nice Uh, one.
0: And and I would sit on, I would sit on any retained earnings you have at this point, Um, because of the coronavirus. Quite frankly, that just seems like sensible, conservative stewardship of the business.
1: About that, just go to the ownership section or on whatever tear sheet you guys use, and I'll show you the problem in the first two, not necessarily the first three. Oh, I tell you, I'll go through this. Here you go. This is sometimes boring, this, but this is interesting. Top shareholder, France. 14.29%. 14.29%. Second biggest shareholder, Dutch government, 14%, which, funnily enough, bought an extra load of shares quite recently. China Eastern Air Holdings, 8.8%. Delta, 8.8%. Air France, KLM employees, 4.2%. That, ladies and gentlemen, is another reason why this company is stuck in the past, because you've got these very uh, solid blocks of ownership from states at the top of it.
2: I just got to test that theory around of consolidation. Coronavirus, if it continues, will we see more consolidation across <laughs> the part? globe... Well, Malaysia Airlines at one point was cited as a potential in the backdrop and obviously they've had a lot of challenges in recent years. But wouldn't that be
1: a, a dilution of the uh, French and Dutch government shareholding
0: what, what, if they what bought What
2: would you call air- it then? <laughs> Franco-Dutch-Malay.
1: Um, do
0: flag carrier airlines propped up by government stakes have a right to exist in the current business world? No. Discuss. I've done it. No. Coming up, uh, the PBOC cuts its benchmark lending rate in a bid to prop up the virus-hit economy. We're going to talk more about the direction for the Chinese economy after this. What's
1: that? You're not glad to have me back? Shut up. Coming up, it's a busy day for corporate earnings in Europe. We'll speak to the CEOs of Schneider Electric, Accor, Anglo-American, as well as the CFO of Swiss Reap and Karen.
2: And we just did a podcast then. If you can't get enough of Squawkbox, be sure to tune in for our podcast. You can head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around. We'll be right back.
1: If you enjoy Squawkbox Europe, check out The Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse.
0: Welcome back, everybody. China's health authorities have reported a sharp drop in the number of new daily coronavirus infections. There were 394 new cases confirmed on Wednesday, down from nearly 1,800 a day earlier. However, there has been another change in the way confirmed cases are reported.
2: The People's Bank of China is cutting its benchmark lending rate to soften the economic blow from coronavirus. It's the latest in a stream of local policy measures in response to the epidemic's effects on business activity and manufacturing.
0: Goldman Sachs believes US and European markets are underestimating the effects of the virus. The company's chief global equity strategist said in a note the risk of a quote downward surprise to earnings growth is high if expectations are not reduced. He warned a correction is probable.
1: Okay, just a couple of quick lines. One on what Karen just said there. You heard the bit about the the rate cuts over in China. You see what S&P have said? See what S&P have said in the last hour or so. They reckon that Chinese lenders could be hit by as much as... What do you want to fill in the gaps? Pick a number. Yeah, OK, I'll do the number for you. $1.1 trillion. $1.1 trillion in questionable loans as the coronavirus deals a heavy blow to China's economy. S&P Global Ratings Warnings. Well. Have a look at that research. I think that's fascinating as well. I was reading from the FT, by the way, there. OK, look at these US markets. Just very quickly. Uh, yeah, record level. Record level. Do you know how many records we've had on the S&P this year? I did have it somewhere. Here we go. 16 intraday and 13 closing record highs. We've had record closing highs on tech, consumer discretionary, the highest level on uh, communication services since 2001 as well. So the markets are gangbusters across the board there. The problem is, of course, uh, as we've said, there are one or two storm clouds out there, uh, bad debts, coronavirus concerns, uh, frothy valuations, and just quite extraordinary how calm these currency markets are. I know Sarah Hoon will speak to in a few moments time. will say, well, yes, seven, but it's been there for a long time. 111, no great moves there. 108, same kind of story. 130, peg on the sterling dollar. So amazing how calm the FX markets have been, how gangbusters these markets have been. Oh yeah, and just one more thing, gold hitting multi-year highs. So there's your barbell. You bought gold and you bought the markets. What happens when we go the other way? If we go the other way, does gold go down as well? Do the defensive assets not perform? Just chucking it out there. Let's have a look at Asian markets very quickly as well. Again, big warning from S&P Global. More rate cuts coming. Um, 1.2% higher on the Shanghai Composite. Opening calls for European markets look like this. Uh, we are called lower across the board with the FTSE 100 seen at 74.41. And the Fed, well, I thought the Fed was mildly bullish, actually. Uh, bullish.
0: Bullish for risk. The Fed minutes, risk. the
1: appropriate current stance, activity is more favorable. Okay. Were lines from the Fed statement.
0: Well, let's uh, let's flesh them out. The Federal Reserve remains upbeat about the U.S. economy, ah, despite acknowledging the global growth risks posed by coronavirus. <laughs> According to the minutes from last month's meeting, Fed officials expect to keep rates at their current level for the foreseeable future as the U.S. economy grows at a quote moderate pace. However, investors are still pricing in at least one rate cut this year and expect it to happen by oh, this summer.
1: Sorry, can't stop talking today. Did you see the PPI data as well? The um, producer prices up 0.5% month on month.
0: Did you see the jolts data, which was weaker than expectations? Did you see
1: the housing starts that were much better than the worst expectations? Did you see the auto
0: loans? uh, Yes, I did. They um, are back to the levels. Did you see the Philly
1: Fed? You didn't, because that's today.
0: Did you see see the Gallup poll on consumer sentiment? Oh man, are Uh, we going? Did you see the
1: uh, Democratic debate? That
0: was tasty. (laughs) Yes, it was. Uh, Sarah, did you see Deontay Wilder in Las Vegas as well? Sparks flew. No,
1: I didn't. Are we done? Did you see City beat West Ham two 0 Yes, I did.
0: Well done, guys. Uh, Sarah Hewin, Chief Economist for Europe and Americas at Standard Chartered Bank, is with us. Sarah, good morning to you. Morning. Uh, what, what did you take away from the Federal Reserve? Because there are those who looked at the Apple warning and what other corporates are now telling us about coronavirus, and they think that the Fed looked complacent.
3: Um, the Fed knows, of course. They're still reporting on uh, what hap- their, their view of uh, the economy back in January I would argue that things have moved on to a certain extent but uh, so far we in the data they're not showing any particular signs of uh, shocks from coronavirus as you pointed out we had Mm. a pretty good you know Empire manufacturing uh, report we had um, still pretty solid uh, reports from from most other hard data Um, so for the Fed Uh, The warnings are about the global economy, the warnings are about some of the uh, sort of coronavirus risks, Um, but um, so far difficult to really take too much away from that. And that
2: standard charted. you've been going right over the industries affected by coronavirus uh, from the auto production companies, auto companies in particular, to to various different industries, uh, hotels, uh, tourism, consumption. Is there a potential when you look at that detail for it to spill across beyond just China and arrive right in the United States?
3: I think there's a, there's a clear risk of that happening and uh, with something of a, a delay. Um, we already know that, of course, travel, tourism has been affected. Uh, the second round effects will be from supply chain disruptions, uh, both in China and across the broader Asia region. So, I mean, our assessment is that we are likely to see one tenth of a percent shaved off uh, US GDP for 2020. Now, that could increase if the coronavirus uh, crisis continues extends into the second quarter of this year
2: what type of response do you expect because it's been weighed up by a number of market watchers that you're not going to get the full blown stimulus from central banks until we we know where there's a peak level of the virus you reach some sort of end point where people can actually leave their homes businesses can resume then you get the stimulus which would actually have some impact same could be said naturally for the united states if there is an impact Mm. in that market so how do you time the responses you could see from central banks this year
3: and China, uh, of course, PBOC has been very proactive, but I thought interestingly with this latest move, the signal is we are providing liquidity as required, we are easing policy as required, but we're not going overboard. And uh, for the rest of the world, I think it's wait and see. So the Fed, the European Central Bank, we can see that uh, policymakers are alert to the risk. They're waiting and watching. And uh, I think we'd have Sorry. no hesitation in cutting if they needed Sarah, to. Sarah,
1: Karen, why are we pretending that they have ammo? Why are they're we they're still... Just... Who? The, the Fed fe- does. Yeah, Maybe. Why are we still pretending that most central banks have any ammo whatsoever? Did we not look at the Japanese GDP data, which shows they're they're bang on for a recession pretty much, or technical recession is on the cards as well? The ECB has chucked everything in the kitchen sink at negative rates. It hasn't worked particularly, it hasn't stimulated the kind of demand. The transmission mechanism is still a disaster. Why are we still living in this cuckoo land where we pretend that central banks, and I appreciate the Fed does have some ammo, that central banks have any of the answers?
3: They've got to do something. No, and, no, no uh... sir. they don't have to do something. <laughs> That's exactly what
1: I think is the exact disaster for the global economy. Pretending that if they do something, it will improve our lot. Actually, and there's a lot of evidence suggesting out there, if they do do something, it will make our lot worse.
3: I think the risk is if they say we're not doing anything, we're out of ammo, we can't do anything, it's up to you guys, governments. so you pick up the slack, then that would be very damaging for markets. It would be very
1: damaging for markets if they do something and it creates worse problems on debt levels at these negative levels.
3: Well, arguably debt levels are not problematic as long as you have very low interest rates. Have you so seen
1: that $1.1 trillion warning from S&P just in the last 20 minutes or so, or last hour or so?
3: Well, again, have the question is, what's Have you seen the $253 the, what's the trillion alternative? Dollars worth of debt
1: globally, Sarah? You this have is to do
3: something. This is the problem. You've got to do something, otherwise you, if you say we're out of ammunition, then I think that's a very bad message to be sending to markets. So... You know, all the studies suggest that uh, by lowering interest rates, by giving a package of measures, then you are actually preventing deflation, you're preventing economies from going into recession. So, um, now, nobody is is saying that the ECB is going to cut rates just yet, or the Fed is going to cut rates just yet, but they do have that capability if uh, we get to the second quarter, the coronavirus impact is still there, and uh, we're starting to see the impact on the hard data which so far is not the case
1: and, and the inflation no worries about that coming through at all no
3: particular worries about inflation still very low it's below target in the US it's below target across europe so uh, i mean that's that's yeah, wage labor costs and i think it's going up over 3% across yeah, both I mean, sides of the atlantic you know, that's, that's inflation that's 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 the uh, the uh, the big mystery is why with low productivity growth and why with Wages rising, you just don't see that feeding through into the price level. Um, now, of course, some central banks are alert to this risk. I would argue that the Bank of England is keeping a very close eye on what's happening to wage growth in an environment of very full employment and uh, relatively low real interest rates. But uh, elsewhere, inflation is not a concern. Yeah, and low salary
1: immigration. Um, Barriers as well could make that even tastier going forward.
3: Well, again, they, they talk a lot about supply side constraints. Yeah. This is one of the <laughs> okay. supply side impacts of uh, Brexit. And so I think that, you know, Baghdadine, we do need to keep quite a close eye on, even though they have forecast that growth is going to be as low as you know, 0.8% this year, they still worry about potential inflation risks coming through because supply-side growth is even weaker than the demand I do like side. talking to
1: economists. I'm always reminded by Paul Donovan's quote from UBS. He says, if only if economists ruled the world, fill in the gaps. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
2: Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.